Hello and welcome to the New Relic Modern Software Podcast. Our topic today, microservices. What is a microservices architecture? What are the best use cases of microservices? How to monitor them? What's the trade-off between flexibility and complexity? And even the cultural implications of microservices? I'm Frederick Paul, Editor-in-Chief at New Relic. And to delve deep into these topics, I'm thrilled to welcome an amazing pair of guests with deep knowledge and expertise, as well as some strong and perhaps contrarian opinions on microservices. Serial entrepreneur Richard Roger is CEO of VoxGig, a global conference and event SaaS company based in Waterford, Ireland. He's also the author of The Dow of Microservices, published by O'Reilly Media. Sean Carpenter, meanwhile, is a principal technical evangelist for New Relic in Portland, Oregon, who's been working with microservices concepts for more than a decade. Before we get started, you should know that you can find full transcripts of the New Relic Modern Software Podcast on the New Relic blog, blog.newrelic.com. And that's also where to look for associated links, images, and other stuff connected to each episode. And for listeners who may not be familiar with New Relic, cloud-based New Relic platform lets you know exactly what's happening in your software and systems in real time. Learn more at, yes, newrelic.com. And now, let's meet Richard and Sean. Hi, Sean. Welcome to the New Relic Modern Software Podcast. Hi, how are you doing, Fred? And hi, Richard. Welcome to you from all the way across the pond in Ireland. How are you doing, Fred? Maybe we can start by learning a little bit more about our podcast participants today. So, Sean, what's your background and what's your role at New Relic? I'm on the product team here at New Relic, currently working in product marketing, mostly focused on APM, but pretty much the whole platform. Before that, I was in product management. Uh, working on our APM product for about three and a half years. And before that, I was uh, a leader of software engineering teams at a couple different companies back in Chicago. My hometown as well. So, Sean, what's your background in microservices specifically? Yeah, interesting. So we worked at a smaller company back in like 2005, 2006 called HomeFinder.com doing real estate search. And that was really my first exposure to microservices. We were actually building microservices in PHP, if you believe that. Mm. Um, Very lightweight, composable services. We didn't really call them microservices at the time. We were just trying to build something that we could build on iteratively and quickly. And so, Richard, what's your background? How did you come to the world of microservices? So I'm currently on startup number four. Mm. Two, two exits and one crash and burn. That <laughs> sounds a little bit crazy. Nobody in a proper company would ever give me a job. I did math in school, so I'm kind of a self-taught programmer. After 20 years of doing it wrong, I kind of discovered microservices. And uh, yeah, never underestimate the faith and zeal of the converted. And that conversion has led you to actually write a book, The Dow of Microservices. Can you tell us a little bit more about the book and how you came to write it? My last company uh, was a startup that turned into a consultancy. And we were building stuff in Node.js. But if anybody has ever tried to build large software systems in JavaScript, you got to know how painful Mm -hmm. that is. JavaScript as a language just doesn't have the internal structure to support large volumes of code. And we ended up, after a couple of years, figuring out that we got to break this down into small pieces. We were doing microservices kind of like Sean before we, the buzzword came in. And the book that I wrote, The Tower of Microservices, in, in some ways takes you on that journey from 
the days when we were building monoliths and how we converted them into microservices and then how we started helping bigger companies get to that place. It's like all those learnings over that five-year period. Uh, hopefully, it's kind of a practical approach to that sort of thing. So let's talk about what we really mean when we talk about microservices. Sean, maybe you can start us off and talk for a moment about the, the traditional definition of what microservices is and, and how we think about it here at New Relic. That's an interesting word, traditional, to sort of build on what Richard Isn't said. A, traditional for something <laughs> brand new. Okay, yeah, I, I get I get the but, problem. Sorry about that. We got three years here. Hey, you know, this industry moves fast. It's good. A lot of time gets spent trying to create a precise definition for microservices, and it doesn't seem like a really good place to spend time and energy. I think that the key is more looking for sort of the markers of microservices, which is a strong separation of concerns between business logic into composable pieces. I think that that's the best place to start instead of thinking about the technology itself as you think about the purpose. And then after that, I think that it's about identifying what are the shareable components within services as they evolve, and can you easily extract those out and abstract them out separately so that other components of your business can take advantage of those things. And then there's obviously then a big discussion that happens with all of us engineers about when is a microservice, when does it have too many endpoints in it to be called a microservice anymore. And there's a new terminology being used called nano service when we're talking about functions as a service, little, very lightweight, single purpose functions that uh, operate within a system. But I think that to pull back, the larger thing is to think about it in the context of the larger system as opposed to wondering if any single component part is a by definition microservice. Richard, does that fit into your perspective that you take in uh, the DAO of microservices? For me, that's the first step. I share with Sean this idea that, you know, looking for a trite, concise definition of the term is kind of pointless. For me, the most important aspect is to understand that microservices give you a software component model. And if you look at the history of software design and architecture. This is this kind of holy grail that we've been looking for. And the, the reason is components are super powerful because it's, it's like Legos, right? It lets you put things together. You have this fundamental operation, which is composition. So you, you build complex things out of small things. And if you look at all the different approaches that people have taken, even things like classical object-oriented programming, CORBA, or the way uh, Erlang fits together its, its processes, all of those things are, are sort of groping in the dark for a component model that is sufficiently powerful, but not too complex to allow large-scale software development. That's kind of the perspective that I come in on, as opposed to implementation details. Sean, does that make sense to you? Yeah, absolutely. And I love this idea of thinking about it in terms of the compositional components. You know, there's a lot of technical objectives that you're trying to achieve when you're building with microservices. You want strong separation of concerns so that it's easier to understand one individual component. It's easier to test and deploy it without a lot of unknown unknowns that can crop up like they will in a monolithic architecture. Like I said, there's a laundry list of these technical constraints that you could want to concern yourself with. 
think it's always a challenge for us as engineers to then pull back and think about the business. One of the best benefits that I can think of is that by having these compositional components, it sort of future-proofs you against the changes in your business needs so that when you're building a service right now, if you build it as a discrete component, then in the future, when the business comes and asks you to do a new kind of feature for your customers, you don't have to go back and do a lot of technical re-architecture to take advantage of that component, at least hopefully. So is that what you see as the benefits of microservices as well, Richard? Yeah, so Sean, I mean, that's, that's a fantastic example because that, that's actually literally a problem that, that has just hit us in the last couple of weeks. So we were a startup, we're build, taking an MVP, agile approach. We started with microservices. That's another topic where I, I'm kind of a little bit contrarian because I say, you know, do microservices from day one. In our system, we had a user microservice that when you log in, it would generate a, a little description of the user and their username and whatever permissions they have, this sort of thing. But we didn't have any groups or organizations in our system. The system that we're building, it's event management software. So you need to have teams and you need to have groups and you need to have permissions. When we got to the point where we had to build that stuff, we were like, well, hold on, you know, the user microservice doesn't understand anything about organization and it shouldn't because we have an organization microservice that does. So the piece of functionality that builds that description of the user's permissions, we move that functionality to the organization service. From the perspective of the other services in the system, they didn't know that it was a different service that was providing them with that description. They didn't care. But you can use microservices in that way where you introduce new functionality to deal with changing business requirements. Usually it comes from a client, we impose it on ourselves. The user microservice is still there, and we're going to have to update it and and delete the functionality that's not existing. But we didn't have to make it more complex. We just built a new microservice for new functionality. What it sounds like we're all getting at here is that the real benefit of microservices is flexibility without complexity, or or am I getting that wrong? Maybe, Maybe you guys can state it better than I can. The first part was right, but I think that complexity is unavoidable. I've never seen a situation where you're able to maintain that simplicity and clarity. I love the title of that book, The Tao of Microservices. I'm picturing this Zen garden. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Our reality is much more messy than that, more messy than I like to keep my desk. You just sort of have to accept it and plan thoughtfully, both from a business and a technology perspective, because I think that that's where the real art is, not so much in how clean and and dogmatically are you able to follow these patterns, but in how quickly can you change when you need to. It's certainly true that there's inherent complexity in a system. All you can do is move the complexity from one place to another. In general, 80% of your use cases or your traffic is going to follow the more simplistic business rules. It's the final 20% that has all the really hard stuff in it. And usually what ends up happening, your data schemas and your logic, your if-then-else trees, your business rules, your lookup tables, they all end up getting polluted by this extra 20% of edge cases. If you've nowhere to put it where it's safe, it pollutes the more simplistic cases. So what I think microservices let you do is 
as Sean pointed out, take that inherent complexity and isolate it into separate services that can handle the really ugly, messy stuff and try to keep a core of simple services that handle the common cases. That strategy seems to be pretty effective. So what I'm hearing is that even if we can't get rid of the complexity, we can isolate the complexity in the edge cases. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it pretty much is as, as simple as that. So given how we've been talking about microservices so far, where do we think that microservices has the most value to bring? What kind of use cases is it most appropriate for? And where maybe should we be a little wary of applying it? There is an undeniable overhead in running a microservice system. There's got to be a trade-off that makes sense. Microservices primarily give you this ability to compose components together, and that gives you the ability to have a high-velocity development cycle. But you pay for it with latency and increased DevOps complexity. So it's most appropriate in the first six to nine months of a project when you are still figuring out a whole bunch of requirements stuff. But once your, your database schema is solidified and the business rules are starting to work or in the startup, if you're starting to hit product market fit, um, you're starting to identify uh, pathways through the system that need where the latency is, is too high because there's too many jumps and too many microservices. At that point, you start merging them and you actually move, in some cases, towards a macroservice configuration. I would characterize it, again, in a somewhat contrarian way as saying they're most appropriate when you have the least amount of certainty. I would agree with that. I think that this is a key point at the beginning where you want to get really clear about your business and sort of your domain object design. What are your main domain objects in the real world? And what are the main ways you expect those things to interact together in the real world? Those end up painting a really, really good picture, not only of your data design, but of the flows of how you would expect that data, those entities to interact in the real world. And then you can use that sort of thinking, that sort of business architecture design to then inform this process that Richard is talking about, then quickly building microservices to prove out end to end whatever that use case you're trying to prove out. I think it goes to helping future-proof so that when you get to those later stages, when you realize you have spreading complexity to be able to pull things together and shift services around from person to person or team to team in ways that you can't, you can't predict at the beginning. That makes a lot of sense. With all that, any tips or best practices on microservices you guys want to share before we move to sort of the next issue of monitoring microservices? Sure. So this one is a, this one is kind of a biggie because this comes from a whole bunch of mistakes that we made in the early days. So we're building all these Node.js applications. They're monoliths. It's kind of crazy. Then we realize, hey, let's break it all into separate services. And oh, hey, the you know microservices are a thing. So we go in all these projects for clients, and we're going, you know what? We're going to sit down. And we're going to figure out what services we're going to build first, and we come up with a list of ten or twenty services. And yeah, it kind of works, but there's a whole bunch of um, friction and it turns out it's really hard it's really hard to analyze a system and decide what services to build and then we changed our our focus to the messages the messages are the most important part if, if i go back to that example i was using earlier on there's a message that says hey give me all the data about this user and it doesn't really matter if it's the user service that knows that or if it's the organization service that knows that plus the groups and can put the group data in there what matters is that the client service just gets a response from somebody. 
So we ended up with this model. It was kind of homegrown. The business analysis side was mostly figuring out the activities that happened in the system. And then you kind of turn those activities into messages. You allocate the messages to services, and that changes over time. So you go list your requirements, break it down into messages. You, you might end up with 40 or 60 or whatever, and then break them down into whatever services make sense. That approach worked pretty well. I got to say, I recommend it because um, it gives you a natural pathway from the business to what you're going to actually deploy. Sean, you have thoughts on that? Yeah, I completely agree. And the way that I've thought about it in the past with teams that I've worked with is, like I was saying before, get really clear about the entities that exist in the real world and how they interact to provide value. And then that will highlight some of these pathways that Richard is talking about. It's the requests and responses. Like that's what really sort of matters to me because that solidifies your contract about how you're going to pass these messages around the system. And once you have those things fairly well defined, it's pretty clear to engineers then how to go and build that system to meet the use cases that they need to meet. If they're going to have a lot of asynchronous activity, it sort of tells them that they need to look at different kinds of queuing technologies. It really informs them about the types of uh, technologies to use to then implement those use cases. So I think that makes a good transition. Uh, Of course, this is the New Relic Modern Software Podcast, which means that monitoring is always close to the top of our list of things to think about. How does monitoring fit into the world of microservices? Or maybe the better question is, how does the world of microservices affect how you need to go about monitoring? I think that as with building any modern system, you need to think ahead of time how you're going to have observability into that system as you build it, just like you would with your your test-driven development. You wouldn't wait to the end to implement your tests. Similarly, we believe pretty strongly that you should start with your monitoring so you can build iteratively and know if that last deploy that you did, if it made things worse or better from a performance standpoint. It's also just more efficient to, to do it that way. I think that when it comes to this question of microservices... I think you can anticipate some of the problems that you're going to have where you're not going to have that many code execution paths within a microservices as you will in a monolith. So you can think a little bit more clearly about the spots where you want to get metrics and the kinds of metrics you collect and tracing is obviously required. But I think with microservices, you can anticipate you're going to have a lot of complexity eventually, and you're going to want to sort of automatically discover the graph of call paths that you're going to have within this system. I think that that's really critical to this issue of understanding complexity in your microservices because you've moved to this world where you have teams or individuals that know parts of the system really, really well, but no one person will understand the entire system completely. Oh boy, I wish I'd taken Sean's advice. Um, you know, it's like I, here I am preaching about microservices from day one, uh, observability from day one. That's kind of basic as well. You know what? I've never done that. Uh, I'm still paying the price. It's just one of those things that, unless it's it's very explicit, you just don't think. You kind of you kind of jump in, you start building, and everything's pretty small at the start, so you can still kind of understand it. The microservice architecture lets you get away sometimes with. A lack of rigor because you can define this contract like Sean was saying and then you can isolate people and and they just do their one microservice and everything still works 
But you always end up in a place. Sean, Sean hit the nail on the head there earlier. You always end up in a place where you have a live running system in production that nobody understands. That is always where you end up. And that's, again, kind of a trade-off that you make because uh, it gives you high development velocity. I think that that's a really great point, Richard. I spend a lot of time talking to our customers. There's this other interesting thing that you find sort of about the life cycle of teams. So when we talk about new systems, whether it's a startup or an innovation center within a large company, what we'll often find is that the engineers that are doing that kind of work They have a really strong sense, even in a complex, difficult domain, about how to monitor and understand it. But sort of the price of success as you grow and succeed and get better is that you end up bringing in more people and handing things off to maybe people that have a different skill set or maybe earlier in their careers or sort of specialists that can do one thing. And those are the moments when you're really glad that you thought about monitoring and observability from the very beginning. Those innovators of those services, they move on. They go on to other new challenges, other fuzzy front ends of problems, and someone needs to operationalize it behind them. And that's probably the most difficult moment when we see customers really having that regret that they didn't have a monitoring strategy in place that they implemented just like they implemented their CI/CD system. If you are a product manager or or anybody who is running an engineering team, the thing that should give you nightmares is losing your institutional knowledge. That's how technical debt really starts racking up. Uh, You have people coming in that might be better engineers than that that initial team. They just never get that depth of intuitive understanding. Because they weren't there at the beginning? That's, That's the scary thing. Yeah. One more question on this topic. What is the role of distributed tracing in the complex interaction between monitoring and microservices? Distributed tracing is really a central pillar of the ways that we think about monitoring in these modern systems. And I think that it's driven by a couple things. One is this decomposition. So you have many more services, but you also have many more kinds of things that make up the system. It's not just small code bases. It's cloud queuing systems or storage systems like S3. It's API gateways spread across many different AWS accounts. It's multiple different clouds, lots of external services being able to use different kinds of functions. And so it's not just about having code visibility down into all of these services that you're executing, but it's all the other dependencies that they're interacting with that aren't exactly coded running software runtimes. The reality is uh, the best you can hope for is to take that distributed monitoring and use it to understand uh, or get a sense of what's going on in the system. But it allows you to do new things that you couldn't do before as well. One of the things we really like to do is compare flow rates. If I have a single message, like a a shopping cart and I'm checking out, uh, and that generates two additional messages, one to the warehouse and one to an invoicing system. That means that every time you have a checkout message, you've got two additional messages in your systems. The flow rates of those messages should have a two-to-one ratio. And if you deploy a new version of the checkout and you're pushing 10% of your traffic through it to check that it's okay, well, that might have passed all of your unit tests and it might pass all of your integration tests or whatever. But there's some issue in production that because that always happens that you just couldn't predict. You will see the ratio of that flow rate change because it's failing. 10% of your traffic is failing. So it's not just about understanding who's talking to who. 
It's also understanding is, is the, the business intent of the system actually being met. That's a super powerful technique because you can do that in an automated way, right? As part of your, your CI/CD pipeline. You can say, oh, wow, we just deployed this thing and the ratios are off. Revert. <laughs> and then you know, have an automated revert and, you can, and then check it out afterwards. So that, that's, doing stuff like that is, is super powerful. Yeah, I agree. And I think on top of that, then, when you discover that in the moment and you can discover it quickly and revert back, you're then also, as engineers, once you've reverted back to the state that you were in, you're going to want to go in and follow these complex graph of paths and zero in on them really specifically to figure out, now, what was going wrong that we didn't anticipate? What system had more load on it than than we expected and why? What is the exact number of additional requests that are spawned off from this request that I was executing that I didn't pick up on in my local dev environment? I guess what I'm saying is that in a microservices world, pretty much guarantee you're going to be in a moment where there's going to be a tweet or there's going to be an alert or there's going to be you know a call from your support team saying that some customer is unhappy and you're going to mitigate the situation, then you're going to want to go back and understand exactly what happened from beginning to end for all the requests that were happening in my system. And you need enough realistic, exact end-to-end examples that you can really understand the flow of work through your system. What is the cultural impact of microservices? I know, Richard, you have some thoughts about how it affects the concept of remote working. Yeah, I, it's a huge enabler. You know, the world is moving to a place where remote working is much more accepted now. Also, if you look at the diversity problem in our industry, remote and flexible working goes a long way to addressing that sort of stuff. Remote working isn't just about using Slack, (laughs) right? Um, Or that sort of stuff, right? Because that's tools that enable you to express the culture. I deeply believe that your technical architecture has to support that cultural goal. Um, And microservices are fantastic way to do that because the fundamental physical architecture of the system enables people to work in parallel at high efficiency where they only have uh, a limited amount of of touch points and maybe they're just communicating through github issues or they're communicating through a, a message schema but it still works yeah i think it's really powerful too not just how it in, enables that sort of the logistics of being able to have many people contributing to different projects I love that point you made about diversity. Oftentimes, companies that care a lot about diversity are constrained by whatever their geographic location is. I thought that that was a really strong point. One thing that we think about a lot, too, is how it unlocks decision-making, that microservices, uh, by isolating business logic and how you're going to support them into more manageable chunks, it reduces... Uh, the need for decision makers higher up the chain who can see across all of those services. And it allows you to empower individual teams that understand their domain well to make decisions and not have to wait for permission to do the right thing for their system or for customers. It really unlocks velocity. There's one little one little extra thing you need to do culturally to make that really work, which I've seen happen in a couple of, of clients is you got to have an acceptable error rate. So in a lot of organizations, there's sort of this grand delusion where it's like, oh, errors are totally unacceptable, right? We want zero bugs. But in reality, every single organization, every single business process, everything, every single system has some level of errors, right? cosmic rays or whatever, or somebody just pressed the wrong button. If you say to your teams, you know what? You can fail on 2% of transactions. 
you get incredible velocity. And maybe the business cost is worth it if you can reach your market sooner and outcompete. That's a, I mean, that's a business decision you've got to take to a fairly high level. But I've seen well, it work. the acceptable error rate for the New Relic Software podcast is some undetermined <laughs> percentage, but uh, we'll keep it as low as we can. I want to thank Sean and Richard for, for their time, uh, expertise, and insights today. And that concludes another awesome episode of the New Relic Modern Software Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about New Relic, go to, you guessed it, newrelic.com. Finally, I'd like to express our sincere thanks again to both our guests. First, Dow of Microservices author and serial entrepreneur Richard Roger, and then New Relic's own Sean Carpenter. Your insights were invaluable. I can't tell you how much I learned today. We're interested in listener feedback, so please feel free to tell us what you think on Twitter, hashtag Modern Software Podcast. To avoid missing an episode, subscribe to the New Relic Modern Software Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever fine podcasts are sold. I'm Frederick Paul. Thanks for listening. And remember, New Relic, because you need to know right now.